0: Welcome to episode 27 of the People's History of Ideas podcast. I recently published a couple of articles, and I want to share them with the podcast audience. I already shared the first one in episode 21. It's titled, The Road is Tortuous, The Chinese Revolution and the End of the Global 60s, and was published in the Chilean journal Revista Izquierdas. This episode... I want to share the second one, which is titled Gonzalo in the Middle Kingdom, what Abimael Guzman tells us in his three discussions of his two trips to China. It was published in the recent issue, or a recent issue, of uh, Transmodernity, Journal of Peripheral Cultural Production of the Luso-Hispanic World, which is a special issue on Latin America and China Um, in particular Latin America and uh, Maoist China. Uh, The general thrust of the article is that while thousands of Latin Americans traveled to China during the Mao years, uh, 1949 to 1976, in order to learn from the experience of the Chinese Revolution, only Abimael Guzman went on to lead a Maoist people's war in his home country. Chinese records on Guzman's time in China are closed to researchers, But Guzman has on three occasions talked or written in some detail about his experiences in China. And so this article closely examines what Guzman has said and written in order to better understand this pivotal time in the development of one of the most important figures in 20th century Peruvian history, of course, which is Abimao Guzman, or otherwise known as Chairman Gonzalo, the founder of The Shining Path. So this episode will be a bit more academic in tone than I try for in a normal podcast episode. Uh, If that's not your thing, sorry, uh, we'll be back to normal next week. Um, The actual article has footnotes and is on the website, peopleshistoryofideas.com, and on the Transmodernity website along with another number of other articles which you know might be of interest to listeners from that special issue. Um, one thing I want to mention before we get going here is that I'm going to be quoting from the writings of Abimael Guzman a lot in this podcast episode. In the article, the original Spanish of what he wrote is given in the end notes. Uh, so if you read Spanish... You might want to check that out. Um, Guzman has a kind of idiosyncratic way of expressing himself that I don't think I can really do justice to in English translation. So if this is a topic that you're very interested in and you do read Spanish, I encourage you to take a look at the article and read his own words for yourself in the original Spanish. And uh, also there are other notes uh, which might be of interest in the article which are not going to make it into this podcast episode. All right, let's start the article. Thousands of Latin Americans traveled to China during the Mao years to learn from the experience of the Chinese Revolution. They trained in the political ideology of Marxism-Leninism, Mao Zedong thought, and many of them also learned about revolutionary warfare. Of these thousands, one figure stands paramount For the effect that this training had on his home country. I am, of course, referring to Abimael Guzman, the founder and leader of the Communist Party of Peru, Shining Path, who traveled to China in 1965 and in either 1966 or 1967, spending seven or eight months there in total between the two visits. Despite the importance that Guzman's Chinese experiences held for his political formation, there is no in depth account or analysis of his time in China anywhere. And this article, I will see if I can fix that. There are three texts in which Guzman gives details about his time in China. None are lengthy, but each one tells a little something different about his China experience. The first and best known text is the interview that Guzman gave to El Diario editors Janet Talavera-Sanchez and Luis Arce-Borja. Talavera and Arce were sympathetic to The Shining Path, and the interview which they conducted with Guzman in July 1988, toward the end of The Shining Path's first party congress, was billed as the interview of the century and did not feature any critical back and forth between the participants. It was the only interview given by Guzman before his capture and was an opportunity for the mysterious leader of the Ascendant Shining Path to expound on a wide range of political and ideological themes, as well as to give some brief personal autobiographical details. One question concerned Guzman's time in China and whether he had met Mao, and the 538-word answer that Guzman gave was all we had for many years on his time in China. The next text to become available where Guzman discussed his time in China, came as part of the series of interviews with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission conducted with Guzman and Elena Iparaguire Reboredo between April 2002 and April 2003. In the May 28, 2002 interview, Guzman was questioned on his personal and political development, and in the course of the interview, more details came out on his time in China. While these interviews were never published, they've been available for use by researchers since the mid-2000s. Guzman's participation in the CVR, that's the, that's the Spanish acronym for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and that's the um, what I'll use to refer to it. Um, so Guzman's participation in the CVR interviews was somewhat reluctant. And this needs to be kept in mind when reading this text. Some members of the CVR were long-time political opponents of Guzman, dating back to well before the war, and the Peruvian truth and reconciliation process is notable internationally for excluding one of the major protagonists in the war, The Shining Path, from its deliberations and organized process, except as interview subjects. The third and final account of Guzman's time is in the book Memorias desde Nemesis, uh, or in English, memoirs from Nemesis, uh, Nemesis being the name given to the, by the Peruvian, uh, military is given to the, um, prison that Guzman is kept in since, um, that was, uh, I believe the Greek god, goddess of retribution. So in his book, Memorias Desde Nemesis, which recounts Guzman's life until the eve of the war in 1980, both Guzman and I are given as co-authors, but the book is written as an autobiographical account by Guzmán. The manuscript was prepared in the mid-1990s by Guzmán, and presumably Iparaguirre, but had to be smuggled out of prison during court dates, and was released on the internet only in 2014. Editions were then published in France, Mexico, Argentina, and perhaps elsewhere. The date of October 12, 1996, is given at the end of the book, presumably as the date the manuscript was completed. However, the Mexican edition of the book contains a prologue by Elena y Paraguire which gives 1994 as the year when the manuscript was prepared. Uh, the text is almost certainly meant as Guzman's official version of his life, written both for posterity and as ideological guidance for his followers. Um. A modified version of Guzman's interview with El Diario has achieved wide circulation and so should be mentioned here. Apparently unsatisfied with the level of detail which Guzman gave in the El Diario interview, in the book La Cuarta Espada, La Historia de Abimael Guzman y Sendero Luminoso, Santiago Roncagliolo added a number of details to Guzman's account. In addition to being pure fabrications, they changed the overall meaning of what Guzman conveyed in his answer. In the interview, Guzman remarked on how, during his military training course in Nanjing, at the end of the class, the instructor demonstrated how anything could be made to explode. Quote, We picked up a pen, and it blew up. And when we took a seat, it blew up too. End quote. Guzman's takeaway from this was to keep in mind, quote, what the masses can do they have inexhaustible ingenuity end quote. in other words while the passage can be seen as representing a fascination with explosions and violence guzman ends the anecdote by discussing how the chinese instructor told the class that making odd things explode was a form of ingenuity that the masses of chinese people came up with during the long course of the chinese revolution When Roncagliolo changes and adds to this quotation, he makes the instructor say that anything can be a weapon. Not only can pens explode, as in Guzman's actual anecdote, but they can be used to stab people, trees can be used as swords, and so on. What comes across is more a sense of animal brutality rather than ingenuity in making odd things blow up. Roncagliolo's book lacks citations, but comparing the text of the original interview with El Diario with Roncagliolo's account allows one to see what he took of the original and where he d- decided to invent new words. While La Cuarta Espada has been widely read, its scholarly pretensions are minimal. Sadly, the account in La Cuarta Espada has been imported wholesale into the recent English language popular history of The Shining Path by Orrin Starn and Miguel Lacerda. The Shining Path, Love, Madness, and Revolution in the Andes. They even name their second chapter, which deals with Guzman's time in China, A Tree Can Be a Weapon, mistaking Roncagliolo's invention for Guzman's actual words. As is often the case with The Shining Path, scholars are advised to take accounts by sensationalist writers with a grain of salt and go back to original sources, especially when those sources are well-known and easily available. In addition to Guzman's own accounts of his time in China, it's likely that at some future point in time a whole other set of sources will become available based on Chinese archives. A few years ago Patricia Castro-Obando, a Peruvian professor at Beijing University, found a document in the Beijing University archives relating to Guzman's time in China. After requesting the document from the librarian, it was moved to an inaccessible archive, presumably the closed party archive where other records of this nature are held. While Chinese archives dealing with foreign communists who trained in China are totally inaccessible for the foreseeable future, at some point in the future they will probably become available, and when that happens we will probably learn a lot more. Finally, in addition to the three sources on Guzman's time in China enumerated above, a lot can be inferred about his experience from the memoirs of other China travelers who had similar experiences. Despite the relative brevity of Guzman's own accounts, we know that his experience in China, particularly during his longer stay when he received formal political training in politics and military affairs, was shared by thousands of other revolutionaries from around the world, mainly, but not solely, from the global south. The coincidence in the accounts of many of these other China travelers, allows us to make relatively solid assumptions about Guzman's own experience. This next section of the article is subheaded the 1965 trip. According to both the CVR interview and Memorias des de Nemesis, Guzman was in China from February until July in 1965, with July 22nd being given in Memorias, as the precise date of his return to Lima's airport. The El Diario interview gives no dates at all for Guzman's time in China. There are two possible sources of confusion on these dates, which should be dispensed with. In the CVR interview, while discussing some details of his 1965 trip, Guzman suddenly states that, "...in October I had occasion to learn some things in China." Given the dates that Guzman clarifies for the 1965 trip a little later in the interview, and which he also repeated in Memorias, I believe that Guzman either slipped into mentioning something from his 1967 trip here, or that he made an error. It's also possible that the the transcript is incorrect. The recording which the transcript was made from is terrible, and errors have been found in some of the CVR transcripts of other interviews. The high quality in general of the CVR transcripts is remarkable given the poor quality of the recordings. A second possible source of confusion on the dates of Guzman's 1965 trip comes from the widely read book La Guerra Senderista, Hablan Los Enemigos. In this book, the author, Antonio Zapata, writes, According to his memoirs, Guzman returned quickly and directly to Peru in December 1965. When one looks up Zapata's citation of Guzman's Memorias, one can see that Zapata made a mistake. Each of the three texts identifies three aspects of Guzman's 1965 trip to China, which are conceptually distinct. First, Guzman attended a political school in Beijing. Next, he received military training in Nanjing. Third, There is a certain amount of travel around the country, basically tourism, that's described, which occurred separate from the political and military training, and which could have occurred at any time during his time in China. There is a fourth aspect to the 1965 trip, which is mentioned only in Memorias, which concerns learning about the launching of guerrilla warfare in Peru by Luis de la Puente Ucedas, Movimiento de Izquierda Revolucionaria, uh, Movement of the Revolutionary Left, uh, MIR and meeting with the Chinese party to discuss that event. Let's start by examining what Guzman said about the political training. In the El Diario interview, Guzman said, In China, I had the chance, which I would like for many others to have, to be in a school where politics came first, from international questions to Marxist philosophy. They were masterful lessons given by proven and highly competent revolutionaries, great teachers, among them, I can remember the teacher who taught us open and secret work. A man who had dedicated his life to the party, absolutely to it, a man of many years, a living example, an extraordinary teacher. He taught us many things. He wanted to teach us more, but some of us did not want to. In short, there is everything in life. In the interview with the CVR, Guzman only said, I went to a cadre school, a school that had two parts. The first was political. It began with the study of the international situation and ended with Marxist philosophy. There were several courses. In Memorias, Guzman gave a bit more detail. Eight of us came together in the cadre school on that occasion. Three from the Confederación Campesina del Peru, the Peru Peasant Confederation, very close with Paredes, three from the Regional del Norte the north regional section of the party, one from Cusco, a follower of Sotomayor, and me. Among them, three members of the Central Committee, one of whom led the delegation, a militant from the north of the country. In the school in Beijing, and in the following order, we studied international situation, centered on the struggle against revisionism and on proletarian internationalism. General political line, The laws and experiences of the democratic revolution in China. Peasant work. The anti-feudal struggle for the land developed by the peasantry, principal force of the revolution. United Front. The union of the proletariat, peasantry, petty bourgeoisie, and national bourgeoisie based on the worker-peasant alliance led by the proletariat. Party building. Fundamental problems and principles of party building— based on the correct political and ideological line. Secret and open work. Principles and experiences of clandestinity and party organization and mass work. Mass line. The masses make history and how to mobilize them with consciousness and willingness, learning from them and serving the people with a whole heart. Philosophy. Starting with contradiction as the only fundamental law of politics for solving the problems of the class struggle of the party and the Revolution. Eight masterful courses on the extraordinary and inexhaustible experience of the Chinese Revolution led by the Communist Party of China, product of the fusion of Marxism-Leninism with its concrete reality, as well as, mainly, source and application of Mao Zedong thought, according to the term used in the 60s. The excerpt from Memorias gives us the subjects of the eight classes, but the question remains— How were they taught? These are potentially very expansive subjects, and could be taught a number of different ways and might use any number of sources. But these courses were also standardized, so it's reasonable to infer that the description given by someone else who took these classes would at least roughly correspond to how they were taught when Guzman attended the course. José Sotomayor Pérez, one of the two leaders of the pro-Chinese faction which met with Mao in December 1963 and got the go-ahead to form a separate pro-Chinese Communist Party in Peru, had attended a similar course in 1959. In his description, the classes were conducted in the following manner. The The courses covered questions dealt with at length in the works of Mao Zedong and the works of the Chinese leaders, the United Front, the Peasant Question, the Mass Line, the armed struggle in the Chinese Revolution, the Chinese party and conditions of clandestinity and while legalized, the struggles inside the party, Mao Zedong's philosophical thought. The speakers made a detailed exposition of each of these topics in two or more sessions and finally gave an account of books and pamphlets which should be consulted. All, absolutely all, were works by Mao Zedong. Given the list of topics covered, it seems likely that Sotomayor's course was almost exactly the same as Guzman's. If Guzman's experience was similar to Sotomayor's, then each class consisted of at least two lectures per subject, followed by an orientation on how the topic is dealt with in Mao Zedong's works. Based on the quote that we took from Guzman's interview with El Diario, uh, the quote was, Among them I can remember the teacher who taught us open and secret work a man who had dedicated his life to the party, absolutely to it, a man of many years, a living example, an extraordinary teacher, end quote. There was probably a separate instructor for each topic. The courses were arranged by the Chinese Communist Party's International Liaison Department, whose records have remained so secret that even the location of its offices during the 1950s to 1970s is still an official state secret. Therefore, it's no surprise that the identity of the instructors of these classes has also remained secret. If each of the topics was covered in two or more sessions, it seems unlikely that the period spent on political training was more than a month, unless other activities like political meetings and tourism were held between sessions. It's also possible that there was downtime between sessions if the teachers were in demand to teach other groups of foreign revolutionaries or if they had other party tasks to attend to. This raises the additional question, were these classes given to the Peruvian comrades alone, to groups of Spanish-speaking communists, or to larger groups of political trainees who each had separate translation staff on hand for translation into their own languages? In 1959, Sotomayor's class at least included some Ecuadorians— because he mentions a request by the Peruvians and Ecuadorians in attendance that the seminar cover the issue of minority nationalities in China. But in 1959, a large number of Latin American communist leaders were brought to China in the hopes that they might be won over to China's side in the escalating Sino-Soviet split, and so they were kept together as a group. When Guzman attended his training classes in 1965— It's possible that the Peruvians were kept compartmentalized from others training in China for security purposes. That certainly happened at times and was probably the norm. For example, Julia Lovell tells the story of Juan, uh, not her informant's real name, who spent two and a half months in Nanjing alone with only his interpreter and eight teachers during his guerrilla training course. An important difference between Juan and the eight Peruvians in Guzman's group was that Juan was being trained to go back to his home country and start recruiting for a new group of his own, while the Peruvian Maoists already belonged to a party which had fraternal ties with the Chinese and other parties, and so it might not have been appropriate for the Chinese party to exercise the degree of control over them that it did over Juan. Reflecting on its own negative experience with the Soviet party, The Chinese Communist Party insisted that fraternal parties treat each other as equals. While this clearly may have been difficult to achieve in practice when the Chinese Party was after all giving lessons in politics and war to cadres from fraternal parties, the extent to which this was actually the case surprised many Latin Americans who had felt belittled in the Soviet Union. There were large numbers of foreigners passing through Beijing and Nanjing in 1965, And it's tempting to think of Guzman sharing a classroom with a cohort of other radicals, such as Pol Pot or the Zimbabwean revolutionary Josiah Tongogara, who were also in China receiving training at the same time. Based on a wide range of interviews on this subject with Latin Americans and others who were in China during the Mao years, what seems most likely is that for security purposes, Guzman's group of eight Peruvians were kept separate from others for their training courses, but perhaps did come together with others during events, such as banquets, which were often held for foreigners, and where a large number of people who were visiting China for different periods of time and for varying purposes might gather for an evening. The travel literature is replete with descriptions of such banquets. One issue to consider about the quality of the small group experience of Guzman's delegation is whether the separation of different revolutionary visitors to China had more to do with security for the visitors or with Chinese efforts to exercise control over the visitors. While concern over visitor security is not incompatible with attempts to control visitors, the two concerns do stem from different motivations and have different aims in mind. There's a tendency in the literature on foreigners in Maoist China to emphasize efforts at control of foreigners. This tendency dovetails with popular prejudices which assume communist dishonesty. And while some degree of control or management was certainly involved, security was definitely a major issue. Eduardo Ayon, who worked on Radio Peking broadcast to Latin America during the 1970s, described security as the main issue at the base of restrictions on foreigners in China at the time. After all, many foreigners who went to China could get in serious trouble just for having been to China. And in the case of those being trained in guerrilla warfare, the risks were all the greater. If the cadre training courses were large, then any graduate who turned informant, or who was captured and broke under questioning, could undermine insurgent forces not only in their own country, but in others as well. We can infer something about the quality of relations among the eight Peruvians thrown together in the delegation that Guzman participated in from the El Diario interview and from Memorias. In the El Diario interview, Guzman complains in the quote given above that while the teacher who gave the lessons on the relationship between clandestine and open political work wanted to teach the Peruvian delegation more, There were others in the group who thought they had learned enough on this topic. Elsewhere in the interview, when asked if he had met Mao while in China, Guzman responded, I repeat that I was not lucky enough to meet him. The delegation that I was in made many mistakes and acted with presumptuousness and arrogance. I think that determined that we were not granted that privilege. Meeting Mao was not a particularly uncommon privilege for foreign communist delegations in China and meeting other well-known leaders, such as Zhou Enlai or Zhu De, was even more common. These meetings were meant to generate goodwill among, and also to give political capital to pro-Chinese foreigners. The fact that Guzman's group did not have such a meeting may just have been due to scheduling difficulties or due to some other trivial matter, But such meetings were common enough that Guzman's assessment that the Peruvians were denied a meeting with Mao due to squabbling among themselves, and possibly with their Chinese hosts, cannot be dismissed. At the beginning of the extended quote from memorias above, Guzman identified the members of the delegation as belonging to four different factions of the PCP Bandera Roja, that is the the red flag or Maoist faction of the Peruvian Communist Party. The quote was, Eight of us came together in the cadre school on that occasion, three from the Confederación Campesina del Peru, very close to Paredes, three from the Regional del Norte, one from Cusco, a follower of Sotomayor, and me. Soon after the delegation returned to Peru in November 1965, Sotomayor and his followers would leave the PCP Bandera Roja to form PCP Marxista Leninista, mainly over issues of how to analyze the nature of Peruvian society and the strategic issues which ensued from differing definitions. For example, among other doctrinal differences that developed, Sotomayor saw President Belaúnde as representing the national bourgeoisie and thus representing forces which could be allied with in fighting imperialist domination of Peru, while the Bandera Roja majority unde as representing the big bourgeoisie aligned with imperialism, making him an enemy of the revolution. Over the next few years, the northerners would leave with the formation of the PCP Patria Roja, or Red Fatherland, uh, sometimes also translated Red Homeland, and finally Guzman and his followers would leave Paredes as Bandera Roja to form Sendero Luminoso, or Shining Path. Based on the disputatious future ahead for the four factions represented by the eight people in the delegation, one can imagine that there may have been quite a bit of squabbling among them. That Guzman was still complaining about it decades later makes one think that the Peruvian comrades may have been quite unpleasant company for each other. The cadre training course continued in Nanjing with lessons in military affairs. In Memoria's... Guzman gives a list of classes taken in Nanjing, just as he did for the political classes taken in Beijing. We attended the military school in Nanjing. People's War, fundamentally its part corresponding to the development of the war on the path of encircling the cities from the countryside. Army building, training, structuring, and preparing the new type of army to fulfill the political tasks of the party and the revolution. Strategy and tactics war in its totality according to the stages of its development, its modalities, tactics, and forms of combat, especially ambushes and assaults. Three equally masterful courses with their pertinent and indispensable practices. Concentrated expression of the experience of the Chinese Revolution and its main form of struggle, raised by Chairman Mao to the military line of the proletariat. It's noteworthy, that in this passage, Guzman emphasizes essentially three theoretical aspects of warfare—the Maoist theory of protracted people's war, the methods of building up an armed revolutionary force, and concrete issues of formulating strategy and tactics. In the El Diario interview, the emphasis is somewhat different. Here Guzman says, Then they taught us military questions, but it also started with politics people's war, then construction of the armed forces and strategy and tactics, and the practical part having to do with ambushes, assaults, troop movement, as well as preparing demolition devices. When we handled very delicate chemical elements, they recommended us to keep ideology in mind at all times and that it would make us capable of doing everything and doing it well. And we learned how to make our first demolition charges. This passage particularly when combined with the anecdote which follows and which was quoted earlier in this article regarding how unexpected items were made to explode at the end of the course, places much more emphasis on learning about chemicals and explosives, and even even though it does reaffirm the importance of the political and ideological aspects of military affairs. Perhaps in 1988, Guzman was more concerned with signaling his ability to manage practical military affairs despite his bookish image even at the time, while once in prison, he was more concerned to emphasize theoretical leadership and to distance himself from the day-to-day aspects of the armed struggle. Indeed, Guzman has been careful to disavow personal responsibility for ordering ordering particular military attacks since his arrest. Regardless of the degree to which bomb-making techniques and other applied aspects of guerrilla warfare were taught in the military part of the cadre training course, there's no evidence that Sendero Luminoso applied any bomb-making techniques that could not have been easily learned in Peru itself, and it's hard to imagine Guzman, ever the quintessential ideologue, as being the best guide in the most practical aspects of guerrilla warfare. However, there is at least one document from The Shining Path that does connect the tactical aspects of guerrilla warfare applied by the group to Chinese military training. Presumably in order to help train the growing number of guerrilla squads which the Shining Path was forming at the time, in March 1983, the Shining Path's Ediciones Bos Popular, or People's Voice uh, Press, issued Documentos de Información, information documents, which discusses basic practical issues concerned with the armed struggle, such as bomb-making and the formation of small armed squads and the coordination of tasks in those squads. This document advocates using the tactic of four groups and a squad, whereby an armed squad is divided into four different groups with different responsibilities in carrying off an attack. Shock, fire, aid, and escape the document attributes this method of of organizing armed groups to Lin Biao, a leading figure first in Mao's 8th Route Army and later during the early years of the Cultural Revolution. It seems highly likely that at least the method of organizing guerrilla squads discussed in this document came from the training course in China. Although, Although whether Guzman brought this method back to Peru with him or another Shining Path leader who trained in China is responsible, it's impossible to say without more evidence. Aside from the political and military cadre training, the other major programmed activity that Guzman's delegation engaged in was travel around China, both to see the progress of socialist construction in action and to see historic sites. In his interview with the CVR, Guzman finishes his description of the 1965 trip with a brief list of places where he went in addition to the sites of the cadre training course. The list is only semi-coherent, which may be due to the poor quality of the recording which the transcript was taken from. I had the opportunity to get to know some things in China, and I was part of them. For the time being important, Shanghai a great center of the revolution. Then, Xi'an and Yan'an, important points of the revolution. Guangzhou, a city. This gave me a better understanding of Mao Zedong thought. Um, Just a note here, there's several ellipses in that quote in the written text. And uh, the CVR interview is, uh, apart from the poor quality of the recording, it's also clearly marked by the fact that Guzman is... uh, Sort of thinking as he answers things. So there's sometimes answers that aren't quite complete sentences. And it's just impossible to say what exactly is going on there with sort of the fragmented nature of that quote and some other quotes we'll have later on in this article from the CVR interviews. What Guzman is expressing here is how traveling around the country, seeing things in action, socialist construction in Shanghai and Guangzhou, and seeing places where important things occur, such as Yan'an, made him feel that he had a deeper insight and connection with Maoist ideology. This was the intention of his Chinese hosts, and it appears that this feeling was widely shared by other China travelers. Going around the country and seeing things in action made what Guzman had just learned feel more concrete, and gave him and other China travelers like him a strong sense of being part of a historical movement with the wind in its sails. Just as in Memorias, Guzman gave a more detailed list of what he studied in the cadre training course, he also gives a much longer list of places that he visited. The way he describes his experience illustrates how this revolutionary tourism inspired him and made him feel connected with the Chinese Revolution. Jingong and Yan'an the forever consecrated monuments in the iron memory of the proletariat and the peoples of the world, inextricably linked to Chairman Mao Zedong and to Maoism. I recall the tireless, massive, heroic struggle of socialist construction. Factories, people's communes, barracks, shopping centers, universities, schools, hospitals and health centers, art galleries and shows, squares and streets, tumultuous hubbub of fresh energy overflowing with optimism and politics in command with its three, fl- three flags, general line of socialism, people's commune and Great leap forward, building the new society, socialism, laying the foundations for future communism. I also recall Beijing, Tiananmen, the historical and legendary square, the monumental facade of deep dark red and Chairman Mao looking out from his imposing portrait, the Museum of the Revolution, the great hall of the people framing it, and in the center the white obelisk dedicated to the heroes of the people, in golden letters of the great helmsman's own calligraphy. Tiananmen in the vast sea of masses, Marx, Engels, Lenin, Stalin, and Chairman Mao leading the fight, forests of red flags with hammers and sickles, banners, slogans, workers, peasants, soldiers, women, youth, the Chinese people, a million at a rally, roaring down with Yankee imperialism, and proclaiming, we support Vietnam. Its unfading voice still thunders in my ears. And the East is Red, an epic of music, dance, and songs, reliving the long, massive battle of the revolution. Black Clouds of Chiang Kai-shek's Betrayal, the epic Long March, Yi and the Assumption of Leadership by Chairman Mao, Yan'an, illuminating all of China, the victorious celebration of the people and nationalities in Tiananmen and ending with the Internationale in majestic chorus, and to top it all, artists and thousands of those present singing the international in a multitude of languages of the earth, an indescribable explosive flood of revolutionary fervor, and Hangzhou, with its incomparable beauty, the calm of the lake, the greenery of its rolling hills, the ineffable paradigm of the Chinese landscape. Finally, Shanghai, a huge industrial working-class and revolutionary city. There I said goodbye. I had arrived in the winter and left in the summer, with my soul more on fire in the red sun of the east. Amidst the long list of revolutionary tourism sites and militant demonstrations, the inclusion of Hangzhou, ineffable paradigm of the Chinese landscape, Toward the end of the list is somewhat jarring, but the inclusion of Hangzhou and Guzman's itinerary and its presentation to him by his hosts as representative of China's beauty is representative of an additional aspect of how China was promoted to foreigners visiting the country. The great beauty and ancient history of China were marshaled as additional appeals, and not without reason. In the friendship societies abroad, officially sponsored solidarity organizations, a certain part of the membership was was drawn to China more out of a general sinophilia than from political conviction. Even among diehard political supporters of Maoist China, Chinese aesthetics could form a powerful part of the initial attraction to China. Uh, such Such was the case with Jose Venturelli, a Chilean communist artist who worked closely with the International Liaison Department to promote Maoist politics in Latin America. When the Cultural Revolution broke out, the tension in China's international solidarity work between promoting Maoist politics and making appeals based on China's culture and landscape came to a head. In Mexico, the Sociedad Mexicana de Amistad con China Popular or the uh, uh, friendships the um sorry the mexican friendship society with people's china broke into two rival factions one of which promoted china's culture and history as the basis of its appeal for solidarity with china and the other of which focused on chinese politics during a tour organized for americans in the early 1970s an argument broke out between tour minders over a request by participants to spend time with the Iron Girl Brigade at the model agricultural commune of Dajai, rather than take a cruise through the Yangtze Gorges. A cadre who one tour group member recognized as a translator for Zhang Qing, uh, part of the radical Gang of Four and the Cultural Revolution small group, argued that the Americans should be able to go work at Dajai for a few weeks, while the more traditional tour minder pushed strongly against it. One other important event occurred during Guzman's 1965 trip, which doesn't neatly fall into either the category of cadre training or revolutionary tourism. While Guzman was in China, the Movimiento de la Izquierda Revolucionaria, Movement of the Revolutionary Left, began its short-lived guerrilla war in Peru. In 1962, the MIR, which is the acronym for the Movement of the Revolutionary Left, had established contact with the Chinese embassy in Havana. And by 1965, 20 to 40 Mir cadre had received training in China and declassified CIA documents claim that China had promised $50 million in aid to the Mir, of which at least several thousand were delivered. John Loost has also claimed that China delivered weapons to the Mir, but it seems more likely that money was delivered that was used to buy weapons. However, the Mir operated on such a tiny budget that if it did receive millions of dollars as the CIA claimed, then it misused the money in a spectacular fashion. More likely, much smaller sums of money were involved, as the CIA is well known for overestimating and even fabricating claims of foreign aid to Latin American guerrilla groups. When the Mir armed struggle broke out, Guzman and the two other Peruvian Central Committee members present in China with him met with Chinese leaders about the armed struggle. The Mir was not a Maoist organization and was politically much closer to Guevara's focalist ideas than to Maoism. The standard Maoist critique of focalism is that it attempts to replace mass struggle with the struggle of a small band of heroic fighters and that it places military affairs above political affairs. If Maoists argue that political power grows out of the barrel of a gun, what follows from the famous Mao quote is that the party commands the gun, and the gun must never be allowed to command the party. Guzman reports in Memorias that this meeting, that in this meeting, he weighed in on the Mir saying that, quote, such a guerrilla movement would not prosper because it had no mass base, end quote. In any case, the question of further Chinese support for the MIR or of Peruvian Communist Party collaboration with the Mir would soon be a moot point as the Mir was crushed militarily within a few months. All right, the subhead for this next section of the article is The Second Trip. Ascertaining the dates of Guzman's second trip to China presents certain problems. Guzman gives contradictory dates for the second trip in the CVR interview and in Memorias. However, He also discusses the trip in Memorias in relation to another event in a way that calls into question his memory of when he traveled. In the CDR interview, Guzman says that he was in China for about two months, maybe August and September, but I wasn't there for the anniversary, for October. In Memorias, Guzman writes that my second trip to China was in October 1967 and that I left Beijing on the eve of the 50th anniversary of the October Revolution. The October Revolution refers to the Russian Revolution of October 1917, which actually occurred on November 7th because at the time of the revolution Russia was using the Julian calendar, which is 13 days behind the Gregorian calendar, which most of the world uses. During the CVR interview, it's clear that Guzman remembered leaving before an October anniversary, but he seems to have been confused about which anniversary he missed. The People's Republic of China celebrates its founding, National Day, on October 1st. Based on only these two statements, it would appear that Guzman had probably been in China from early October to early November 1967. However, in Memoria's Guzman gives a detailed account of attending the Albanian Party of Labor's Fifth Congress in Tirana before returning to Peru and then being swiftly dispatched to China. The problem is that the Fifth Congress of the Albanian Party of Labor, this is what the ruling Communist Party's formal name was in Albania, took place from November 1st to 8th, 1966. Given the lucidity of his description of events during the Congress in Albania, it seems most likely to me that Guzman went to China at the end of 1966, not in 1967, and that his memory of missing the anniversary of the October Revolution is because he arrived not long after the anniversary, not because he left just before the anniversary. Additionally, in the El Diario interview, Guzman says that he arrived in China when the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution started, which would be a more accurate statement for 1966 than 1967. Given these discrepancies, I think we can safely say that Guzman went to China for a month or two between November 1966 and November 1967, but that beyond this approximation, it's very hard to be certain without more sources coming to light which don't rely on Guzman's memory. The purpose of Guzman's second trip to China was to deal with party business, but the effect was to expose Guzman to the Cultural Revolution, with dramatic results for Peruvian history. In both the CVR interview and in Memoria's, Guzman reports that he was sent to China to check on why the Chinese Communist Party had cut off its monetary subvention to the Peruvian Party. Guzman was informed by the Chinese Party that, Chairman Mao has argued, I was informed, that it is wrong to continue providing economic aid in this way. It is a revisionist form that does not serve the revolution, but on the contrary damages it. The main form of support is to make and develop the revolution, and that each revolution must be supported by its own efforts among the masses. Thus, maintaining itself will maintain self-determination and political independence. That would be the policy that the CCP would follow on this point from now on. While this is undoubtedly what the Chinese communists told Guzman, it's not the whole story the Chinese Communist Party did continue giving monetary support to some revolutionary groups around the world during this time period, even as it encouraged others to stand more fully on their own feet and to be more independent by developing and relying on a mass base in their own countries. In particular, the Chinese Communist Party seems to have cut off money and encouraged self-reliance in response to sectarian, dishonest, or careerist behavior among its foreign supporters. As becomes clear as Guzman's narrative of his conversations with the Chinese communists continues, the Chinese Communist Party had major doubts about the reports it was getting from visiting Peruvian Maoist leaders about communist activities in Peru. I discussed the situation of the country, the Peruvian Revolution, and the PCP, which stands for Peruvian Communist Party, with leaders of the Communist Party of China. I gave a presentation to leaders and cadres on those points, followed by questions and an exchange of opinions. On a more circumscribed and higher level, I explained in detail how I saw, mainly, the party and its prospects. I was told about information presented by leaders of the PCP, including Paredes, who was the chairperson, as well as positions and expositions that they had given in various visits to China and I was asked about their veracity. I responded by providing evidence and analyzing realities. In summary, the party's strength and capacity had been inflated, as well as its influence on the masses and the possibility of generating, at any moment, a great peasant uprising supported by partisan armed forces. A total and complete lie. I think the Chinese comrades simply confirmed the suspicions they already had. They underlined the responsibility of the leaders and the tasks of the communists. They ended by reflecting on the complexities, difficulties, and risks that the Communist Party of Peru was entering into. What thoughts the Chinese Communist Party's international liaison cadres had of the PCP Bandera Roja Maoists, one can only guess, as here the group's organization secretary, Guzman, told them that the general secretary, Paredes and others had vastly inflated the group's influence and the possibility of an imminent mass uprising in Peru. One doesn't wonder that the CCP decided that the PCPBR was a bad investment, at least for the time being. Many other pro China organizations had their funding cut off around the same time, so, in no way, was the Peruvian Communist Party Bandera Roja particularly singled out when it was told that it needed to rely on its own resources and that this ultimately would make it a stronger organization. But, to reiterate, Guzman's perception that every pro-foreign Chinese group had its funding cut off at this time is not accurate. But the real significance of Guzman's second trip to China lay not with his dealings with the Chinese Party in relation to funding issues— but in his witnessing the Cultural Revolution and the lessons and inspiration he took from that experience. His discussion of his time in China during the Cultural Revolution in the three texts allows us to see what he considered important about the experience. And the El Diario interview, all Guzman says about his second visit to China was that, "...we requested that Mao Zedong thought be explained to us." While this isn't much to go on, It is interesting that having already been through an approximate half-year of training in China in 1965, Guzman was prompted to want to learn more about Mao Zedong thought by seeing the dramatic events of the Cultural Revolution playing out around him. Implicit here, and this was true for most pro-Chinese communists at the time, was a sense that something new was happening that was not encompassed by what he had previously learned about Mao Zedong thought. And the process of revolution and socialist construction in China. The other two texts give more details about what was involved in this new learning about Mao Zedong thought. In the CDR interview, the first concrete thing that Guzman mentions about the second trip is we had a chance to go to a book purification. I remember a famous writer, Mao Dun. It is odd. That this was what came first to mind to Guzman's mind during the interview. Mao Dun was an internationally celebrated rival, white writer who had participated in the May Fourth Movement in 1919, uh, had been a long-time member of the Communist Party since its founding, and had served as Minister of Culture since 1965. Like many formerly celebrated progressive writers, his works were attacked as rightist during part of the Cultural Revolution that Guzman highlighted his witnessing the destruction of the books is telling. In the propaganda materials of international Maoism, such events are treated more as embarrassing excesses, not as central themes of the Cultural Revolution. But here, Guzman is saying that this event impressed him deeply and that it informed his own political practice. In another passage from the CVR interview, Guzman states that the high level of mass mobilization during the Cultural Revolution also had a major impact on him. The marches were different, very profound changes in all fields, of course much bigger political changes. When I was there, I was in the same center with military protection. When I was there in 65, it was conventual, silent. 67? 67 was thunderous. At certain times of the day, marches, What was it exactly about this that impacted Guzman? Was it the military pomp and coordination of the marches, which the world would later see on display in the disciplined cultural productions of Shining Path prisoners? Was it the sense that a socialist society could draw masses of people into political action in order to continue revolutionizing the society rather than degenerate into a bureaucratic morass? It's hard to say exactly, but whatever it was, People who knew Guzman remarked that he came back to Peru after his second visit a changed man, energized and on a mission, imbued with a new sense of possibility. There is one intriguing comment that Guzman made during the CVR interview regarding the second trip to China, which concerns a major change in the quality of his interactions with his Chinese hosts. Things that impressed me, profound changes from the way in which foreigners were received before and during the Cultural Revolution. Unfortunately, Guzman does not say what these changes were. What we do know, though, is that on his first trip, he was part of a delegation that was being trained and shown around China, and that the infighting within this delegation, and whatever else was meant by Nessias Petulantias, Translated as presumptuousness and arrogance in the discussion above, were apparent to his Chinese hosts. Here, Guzman was in China as the representative of a fraternal party, and at least by his own account, he engaged in comradely and confidential exchanges with high-level Chinese communists regarding the situation in Peru. If nothing else, this difference in the conditions of the two trips might account for a lot. However, Guzman generalizes about a change in how foreign guests were treated. While the Cultural Revolution involved many chaotic changes, not all of them due to deliberate changes in policy, it is not clear what Guzman means here. We have seen above, for example, in the case of the dispute about whether an American delegation would visit Dajai or the Yangtze Gorges, that there was contention among those charged with liaising with foreign visitors about what were appropriate activities for visiting foreign delegations. But there also seems to have been a lot of continuity in China's reception of foreign delegations and training of foreign revolutionaries. Guzman may have just been generalizing from the change in his own experience, or he may have identified a policy change that has gone unremarked in accounts by other travelers to China a few more de- a few more important details about the second trip emerge in memorias after discussing the issue of his mission to request funds from the chinese party guzman went on to discuss what he saw as the really important aspect of his second trip but the above was not the important thing about this second trip to china the main thing was to see and experience something of the great proletarian cultural revolution my first direct contact with it was in Canton and Shanghai. In this, center of the January proletarian storm, a welcome and conversation with leaders of the Revolutionary Committee and, upon arrival, an unforgettable reception by Red Guards for passengers arriving from abroad. It was evident China was again an immense, bloodless revolutionary battleground of broad masses mainly learning to make the revolution by doing it exercising various forms of revolutionary violence, with the protection and support of the People's Liberation Army and under the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party led by its only great helmsman, Chairman Mao Zedong. What is most revelatory in this paragraph is Guzman's meeting with the Shanghai Revolutionary Committee. Shanghai was the political epicenter of the Cultural Revolution, and three of the four members of the Gang of Four the radical leadership of the Cultural Revolution, were members of the Shanghai Revolutionary Committee. Zhang Chunqiao, the chair of the committee, was later the author of On Exercising All-Round Dictatorship Over the Bourgeoisie, and sponsor of other efforts to develop a Marxist political economy of socialist construction which would theoretically explain the rise of a new bourgeoisie within the Communist Party. This idea was a common refrain of the Cultural Revolution, but without the efforts of Zhang Chunchao, the concept would have lacked the the theoretical substance necessary for Maoism to travel internationally to the extent that it did, especially after the death of Mao in 1976. Whether or not Guzman actually met with Zhang is not clear, but it is known that Zhang did make a practice of meeting with foreign communists visiting Shanghai at at this time, In any case, Guzman would have been exposed to a particularly clear and partisan take on the theoretical underpinnings of the Cultural Revolution, ideas which would prove foundational for Guzman's and other international Maoists' interpretation of the significance of the Cultural Revolution and in the articulation of post-Mao Maoism. Guzman goes on to expand on his experience of the revolutionary energy in Beijing on his second trip as opposed to the quiescence of the city during his 1965 trip. In Beijing, I returned to the same center where I was in 65, but much had changed for the better. Yesterday's quiet and almost silent neighborhood had become an area of sharp struggle, with marches, gongs, and meetings with ardent slogans and debates. Everywhere, then, the revolutionary spirit burned, overthrowing the old and developing the new, the proletarian. I visited various Red Guard organizations, and in all of them we felt, in the vibrant transmission of their experiences, how China, the beloved great socialist homeland, was transformed. While Guzman expands here in Memorias on the description he gave in the CVR interview of a Beijing convulsed by revolutionary tumult, the most intriguing aspect of this passage is the revelation that Guzman visited with different Red Guard groups while in Beijing. While on the surface, the Red Guards might all seem to be united by reverence for Chairman Mao, the articulation of actual political beliefs by Red Guards was not subjected to the centralized discipline that was standard practice within the Communist Party. In practice, this often resulted in the expression of a variety of different political lines, some sharply opposed to each other. Guzman would have been highly attuned to the variations in ideological expressions among the groups, assuming that he had an accurate translator with him. It is too bad that, at this point, we don't know which Red Guards he visited with, but as with the case of his discussions with Zhang Chao's Shanghai Revolutionary Committee, one can't help but wonder how the experience affected Guzman's own adaptation of Maoism when he returned to Peru. The only clue that Guzman gives as to the particular content of his visits with Red Guards comes in the following passage. The most unforgettable experience of that second trip was the one lived in the palace of the great proletarian cultural revolution, great barracks for the Red Guards. In it, from the lips of its own mass protagonists, I drank of the great feet of the highest wave of the world proletarian revolution, and I admired their exhibition, a masterpiece of revolutionary propaganda. The two lines struggle in the great proletarian cultural revolution. The red line displayed in resounding and brilliant colors and heroic images at the top. At the bottom, the black line in dark and gloomy colors of grim and crawling characters and defeated revisionist leaders and fallacious academic authorities. In short, a lapidary denunciation and forceful crushing of the bourgeois line and an epic hymn to the proletarian line. This passage confirms that Guzman saw himself as learning from the Red Guards, but sadly tells us nothing new about the content of that learning. In passages like this, the most remarkable thing is how stereotyped language can be used to say so little with so many words. Finally, toward the end of the narrative, Guzman reveals one last important piece of information, but again fails to elaborate. On this second visit to the People's Republic of China, to Socialist China, to the China of the Communist CCP and of Chairman Mao Zedong, I requested and received extraordinary presentations on Mao Zedong thought, the great proletarian cultural revolution, and the Cuban problem. I took notes from them. They helped our party a lot. It would be fascinating to understand more about how the Chinese Communist Party oriented its Latin American supporters on the Cuban problem. By 1966, relations between China and Cuba had become fairly antagonistic, as Cuba had decisively sided with the Soviet Union in the Sino-Soviet split. It is not surprising that Cuba would have been a topic of conversation between Latin American Maoists and Chinese communists, but given the inaccessibility of Chinese archives, Guzman's confirmation that such conversations did take place is significant. One only wishes he were more forthcoming about the content of the extraordinary presentations that he received on the, co- on the topic. So in conclusion, one final remarkable aspect of Guzman's time in China is just how unremarkable it was. Thousands of other revolutionaries were hosted in China and trained by the commun- Chinese Communist Party. Many of them spent more time there and enjoyed greater access to the great figures of the Chinese Revolution, including Mao himself. It was China's goal that many more of them would go back to their home countries and do precisely what Guzman did. But in Latin America, he was the only one who led a major revolutionary effort. Others, such as Florencio Medrano in Mexico and Oscar Zamora in Bolivia, tried to start a Maoist people's war, and either died or capitulated long before they could gain the traction that Shining Path achieved within months of beginning its armed struggle. When looked at through a comparative lens, Guzman was the most successful of the many Latin American graduates of China's training programs. All right, that concludes the article. Again, if you look on our website or on Transmodernity's website, there are notes uh, including Spanish language text of uh, Guzman's writings and, uh, you know, a variety of, of endnotes notes uh, with more information uh, with and sources and stuff like that. So if you're really interested in it, go check it out. Um, and otherwise, I will see you next time. Take care.